Ankh uh, teacher who, in giving teachings on how to maintain a balanced and uh, relaxed practice, especially in relationship to the defilements or the hindrances, says various things about how we can use the hindrances in our practice. So some of the things that he says in introducing the hindrances this evening to you are these things. A wise and skillful person can turn poison into medicine. A skilled meditator can transform hindrances into understanding or wisdom. Defilements are part of the Dhamma. Do not reject them. Not accepting them will only strengthen them. Most yogis make the mistake of expecting good experiences instead of trying to work with the defilements. So, of course, tonight and usually at the beginning of a retreat, we offer the Dhamma talk on the hindrances. Sometimes they're known as the defilements. And so these are sloth and torpor, doubt, aversion, restlessness, and attachment. These are challenges that we all have in our practice. And although uh, many of us here are experienced yogis, it's always helpful to understand uh, more about them in ourselves, how they work. It's always helpful to hear about them so that we can become more familiar with them in our practice. So during a retreat like this, we give ourselves this precious opportunity to know things as they are in our bodies, in our minds, to discover this really precious human existence that uh, each of us are in our own unique ways. We're discovering this precious human existence not theoretically, not from reading books, not from just hearing the Dhamma when when we as teachers offer the talks, but to know them through our own practice of mindfulness, to know Uh, this body-mind continuum in a very uh, close way, in a very intimate way. When the Buddha said more than 2,500 years ago, in this fathom-long body, the whole of the universe can be discovered. And we are seeing that in our moment-to-moment experience as uh, we are led by ourselves and with the help and support of everyone here more deeply into the mind, into the heart, into the body. We are in the midst of that discovery of what is this all about, that profound discovery, self-knowledge. And I guess we all can admit, as Zorba the Greek said, Self-knowledge is not always good news. There's a lot of difficulty that arises in our practice, and we open to that too. So there is this discovery, intimacy, with this inner terrain of our minds, of our hearts, of our bodies, the beautiful places, the lightness, 
the pleasant experiences that we have, of course, are all part of it. But as the Burmese uh, Seidao says, if we're looking for that, we, uh, we all together miss some very important areas where we actually gain a deeper understanding, where we actually uh, miss the springboarding into liberation. So we open also, we're encouraged also to open to the sharpness, the edges, the unpleasant, rough areas of our practice. And those are the hindrances that were are all so uncomfortable, unbearable sometimes, but necessary to open to. I know for myself when I came to the Dhamma, I wanted to open. And when I thought about opening, what my understanding idea was, was just to open to what was beautiful, to have all those blissful experiences. And so in the very beginning, I was very disappointed and I felt that I couldn't do it because I didn't have the blissful experiences all the time, maybe a few here and there. And our teachers, my teachers, always kept reminding me that that's not where you have the most understanding. You know, you can go there and actually get so attached to those places that you don't want to go anyplace else. And you really never understand or learn how to work with the difficult states of mind, the difficult, um, the painful places in the body. And so I had to learn that in order to really open, I had to be willing to open to it all, not just to the beauty and the, the easy bits, but also to the hard bits, the, the difficult places. It was helpful for me to have that intention to discover the actual intention to discover what's difficult, to be honest enough with myself to see what's, um, what is not working so well, what are the obstacles that uh, uh, trip me up in my practice. The willingness and the intention, the actual intention to discover the hindrances, to allow myself to recognize whatever unfolds and not choose, not try and run away from what's difficult and run run towards what is easy, which has been a habit pattern of my own practice. When we have that conscious intention um, to do that, that willingness, we have a, a wholesome kind of curiosity about life, about life within us, that kind of curiosity that can really overcome what's difficult. I've always been inspired by this quote by Albert Einstein, who said, I think people generally overestimate me. I realize, of course, the value of my contributions to science, but I don't consider myself superior or different. I'm not more gifted than anyone else. I'm just more curious. 
So can we be more curious, which requires a willingness uh, to open to what's difficult in our practice? So that when we have this conscious intention coming from this willingness, when whatever is being open to, we can say, aha, instead of, oh no. Usually that's what happens. So when I notice that I go into a retreat, and even now, after many years of practicing, when I go in really willing to open to what's uh, more of the defilements, then when one is right there, or even just the head of it is coming out uh, in my practice, or the tip of the iceberg, there's a ahaness that goes on instead of a closing down and a turning away from. In one of my last uh, times that I went to Burma to practice with the my main teacher during the last uh, years, Sayadaw Upandita, he said, why are you here? And I, he asked me, and I said, I'm here to clean out my heart more. So I really had this willingness, this very strong willingness to see whatever is there to open to. And that was a really intense retreat for me. What I opened to wasn't easy, of course. There was a, there was a lot of uh, places that I had been denying for a long, long time. I was in denial of. That I opened to somewhat, but not fully. But this willingness and this intention to actually open to those places that I had been ignoring partly or uh, thoroughly was met by equally uh, the equal strength of uh, mindfulness at times, enough to get through that retreat with a greater sense of confidence about uh, my own ability to be free. So it's really important, this, for me, this intention, this conscious intention to discover what has been hidden, to open to uh, what has been ignored or partially ignored for a long, long time, and to do it with a balance, with a sense of balance, a sense of relaxing around, as um, we've been trying to point out, relaxing more around what we open to. Noticing what our intention is. It's my intention wasn't just to uh, be cleaner in my heart, but also to do it with um, a sense of balance. So for all of us, through the simplicity of the kind of practice we have here, the sitting and the walking our practice can gain momentum. And when that uh, momentum comes and uh, gets stronger, mindfulness gets stronger. And when mindfulness gets stronger, many of these hindrances get more exposed and actually more clear to us. It gets difficult. It gets really challenging. But this is really good. When the hindrances are there, um, I feel that then I'm really doing the work of my practice. When I would report sometimes to Upandita and the report wouldn't 
contain some amount of you know opening to hindrances i would uh, i would think that he was suspecting me of covering up of not really being totally truthful with what was going on and he would inquire is there anything else is there and actually point out when i would give uh, my report about various experiences he would point out how I might be clinging in a very subtle way to something or how I might be rejecting something else in a very subtle way because of not uh, having the total willingness to open to it. So if you're working with the hindrances, then usually it's good practice. And it's really good practice when we can learn how to work with them in a balanced and really relaxed way. The Buddha said, Mind by nature is radiant and pure. It is shining. It is because of visiting forces known as defilements that we suffer. So these defilements obscure the radiance and purity that's there. That radiance and purity is the the simple yet profound ability of the mind to know what is true and on a very deep level in every moment. So these are called hindrances because when mindfulness is not present, so I want to repeat that, when mindfulness is not present, ignorance is. And so these hindrances can take over and and they can be taken to be uh, true. We can believe them. We can believe them to be permanent. We can believe them to be personal. This is me. This is mine. This is who I am. But when mindfulness is not there, then when mindfulness is there, then there is less and less ability, depending on the strength of mindfulness and all the factors that uh, support mindfulness, there is less and less ability for ignorance to be there. There's more and more ability when mindfulness is there and the other factors for the truth of life, of every moment, to be seen in its pristine clarity. So the clearer recognition of life is known, how the mind works, how the body works, how they work together, how each moment is unique, how the universal characteristics of impermanence, the impersonality, and the unsatisfactory nature of every moment is known. We're not jerked around by anything that appears. When mindfulness is there, even with the hindrances, and especially with the hindrances, the truth of all of that can be seen, how it's impermanent, how it's evanescent, how it's impersonal. So there are no longer obstacles. It's no longer a, oh no, it's more like a, aha, This is how it is right now. As painful as each of these are, 
Of course, it's better to be aware of them than not to see them at all. So most of you, or all of you probably, are very familiar with these hindrances, at least in name, and we're becoming more and more familiar with them in our practice and intimate experience. So I'd like to go through each of them and remind you of the usual tools that we use to um, as antidotes for these hindrances. And this helps to renew our willingness to be with them. There, um, this is not so much so we become more and more technique-oriented, but just to remind ourselves of how we can work with them so there's more balance around them. Mostly I want to point out the basics that we often overlook uh, because as Carol said last night, it's so utterly simple. Sometimes the obvious is the most hidden, the obvious understanding of these hindrances. So some of the basic understandings that I'd like to point out with various of them is that we recognize What's going on? The first thing to do with any of the hindrances, sloth and torpor, doubt, aversion, restlessness, and desire, is to recognize what's going on with a straightforward honesty. Just to be able to say without any excuses, this is what's happening right now. This is how it is. And then the second thing is to relax around it. These are a lot of R's that may help you remember. To relax around what's going on, not to struggle, to relax the body, to relax the mind. And to reframe our understanding about each of these hindrances. A lot of times when the hindrance comes into the moment's experience, we say, oh, no, I can't deal with this, or my practice isn't good. I, don't, I, I can't practice with, with this sleepiness or with this restlessness or aversion. What we have to remember over and over again is that this is the very place to bring our practice, this very place of sloth and torpor, this very place of restlessness, this very aversion. This is the Dhamma, too. This is the truth of the moment. And so we often forget that. Reframing our understanding about this moment's experience is so important because it helps us to not reject what's going on. Oftentimes our motivation when we come into practice, and especially when the hindrances are faced, the motivation is to do our practice is to get rid of them. Sometimes I myself, and I have heard in, in um, interviews that I kept noting so that I could get rid of it. I kept noting so that it would go away, but it wouldn't go away. And so in that very, you can, you can feel, you can tell in that, very sentence and that very explanation that there is some wrong motivation there. There is some motivation that isn't uh, 
uh, it's not going to work. When we come towards the hindrances to get rid of, to fix, or to change, or uh, to make it any other way than it is. So it's helpful to understand what our motivation is as we go through practice. Our meditation practice should simply be to open to whatever's happening as it is, just as it is, without trying to fix or change or get rid of or comment on or compare. Another one of the R's that I'll use as I go through these various hindrances is to re- is restraint, not to act out the hindrance. And um, I have myself uh, seen how it strengthens that habit pattern. As I've acted out my desire to see more, to hear more, to kind of get curious in about my surroundings where I'm at in a retreat, um, where I'm not uh, guarding the sense doors, it, it just uh, reinforces that wanting, wanting more, which then goes into restlessness. So just a small example of how restraint is needed to restrain oneself from acting out. Receiving the true nature, the unique characteristic of that experience. Oftentimes, we don't realize it, but we're thinking about aversion a lot, for example, rather than actually feeling it in our body-mind. We talk about and think about wanting rather than actually feeling the um, how the body feels when attachment or wanting is there. So turning the mind towards actually letting the experience reveal the unique characteristics of that experience. And I'll give some examples later. And the last star is to realize something universally true about that. And usually that means one of the three characteristics of how it's so impermanent to realize the impermanence in that moment of experience. Not the fact that, for example, our children, you know, come and go out on their own or that the seasons change, but to see the impermanence in that very moment of a moment of thought, a moment of aversion, a moment of wanting. To see the... uh, the anatta characteristic or the selfless characteristic of it, how it's so not in our control. I mean, we see this over and over and over again in our practice, how it's so not in our control, but duh, when do we ever learn? It takes seeing it over and over and over again and realizing it's uncontrollable. Aversion arises and passes away. It's completely... Uh, doing this because of conditions, not because I order it to come or order it to go. So the first um, hindrance is sloth and torpor. From a nature program, I learned that a sloth sleeps 20 hours a day. And I learned that 
I'm a sloth sometimes at the beginning of a retreat, especially when you travel a long ways and you come with a very deep tiredness, as I've heard some of you in uh, in interview talk about. Of course, we have a lot to prepare before we come here. And sometimes it's actually true that we we need some more sleep when at the beginning of a retreat. In time, though, and probably by now, for those of us who have come a long ways, we start feeling our energy more balanced out. And we may not need that extra time in the morning or that extra nap in the afternoon. We can begin to um, restrain ourselves from uh, having that extra time because it may may only uh, begin more sluggishness or more sloth. But each of us have to find out that for ourselves. Each of us has our own unique balance. So the the tiredness goes away, but the torpor can come at any time in our practice. And in the Pali Dictionary, Pali is one of the ancient languages that recorded the teachings of the Buddha. In the Pali Dictionary, it describes torpor as not alert, as sluggish, as dullness. So all throughout our practice, we may feel this sluggishness, this dullness. And I like Webster's Dictionary. Uh, Their description of it was partial or total insensibility. This really refers to me. When there's sloth and especially torpor, I I really can't think straight. You know, it's like, what do I do? And I'm just totally kind of nodding and nodding and nodding. And it doesn't come easy to me that the first thing to do is to recognize what's going on. So this is the first thing that we need to remember, especially about sloth and torpor, because we have the... We have a habit of, well, I can be more mindful when I'm not so sleepy or I'm not so dull. But actually, this is the very place to bring our attention. So here, it's recognizing what's going on and reframing our understanding. Reframing meaning this is the very place to practice mindfulness, not when it's over, but this very place. And then receiving the unique characteristics of uh, this sloth and torpor. What are the unique characteristics that we can recognize? Sometimes in the beginning, we can't recognize them all or not very many of them, but we may begin to recognize heaviness. This is a unique characteristic of sloth and or torpor, heaviness in the body and the mind. We can also sometimes feel lightness. For some of us, it's pleasant. If we're fighting it, it's unpleasant. There can also be a floating sensation. There can have a feeling of stiffness and rigidity. Sometimes if if we're nodding, You know, if we're bobbing up and down, we we can feel that movement. And uh, many times in my own practice, the attention is brought just simply to that movement of, you know, 
going up and down, or even slight tilting of the body one way or another. In the text, they say that giving unwise attention to lassitude and sluggishness is the nourishment of sloth and torpor. The arousing of energy is the antidote. So giving unwise attention might be um, eating too much. That's one of the things that's talked about in the ancient texts. Find out, just take a look if our, how much we're taking in food-wise could be one of the causes and condition for sluggishness in the afternoon. Might be giving rise to heaviness and uh, just to a feeling of dullness in the mind. Certain foods that we eat may do that also. So noticing what that is. The arousing of energy is the antidote, it says in the ancient text. So how can we do that sometimes? So this may be a very practical taking a fast, doing fast mindful walking or regular paced mindful walking, maybe before the first afternoon sitting. This can be very, very helpful. Another uh, thing to remind us of is standing up. Standing up, usually we need much more attention when we're standing up. And, of course, keep your eyes open. That really helps, um, especially standing up. I know one only one person that fell down, and he woke everybody else up too. So I hope you're not the one who does that, but... Um, Standing up can really help. Opening your eyes, even when you're sitting, helps. Pulling your earlobes helps. An uh, acupuncture friend of mine told me that somehow it changes things that go on in the head, in the mind, and uh, we can become more alert. And I look at um, pictures of the Buddha with long earlobes, so I don't feel... He must have done that a lot, maybe. Who knows? <laughs> sitting up more straight, that really helps, especially when we're sitting in, in chairs and we're feeling that we're, we're nodding a little bit or bobbing a little bit. Sitting away from the back of the, of, uh, the chair can really help. Um, we don't have to do that all the time, but some of the times that can be helpful. Sometimes I recollect life is uncertain, but death is certain. And this can keep one really awake (laughs) in your practice. Once when I was um, much younger and I uh, I went to do some practice, and it was the first time I went to a long retreat and had three small children, and I went to a month-long retreat. And... um, I didn't think I'd ever get to practice again. I thought, wow, this is a big sacrifice to go. They were in good care. And so I really had this life is uh, uncertain, death is certain, and I didn't know if I'd be able to come back again. I was so awake during that whole month. It was There were times when I didn't sleep the whole night. Now, I'm not suggesting that you do this or that everybody can, but I just had my hair on fire during that time with the Dharma. And it doesn't come all the time. I don't have it anymore. 
I have it in a different way now. Um, I wouldn't stay up all night, but during that time, it uh, it really that recollection really kept me awake, and the fact that I may not ever be able to practice again, it really helped me to make the most out of my practice. So recognizing what's going on, refraining from acting out what's feeding uh, that sloth and torpor, and letting, uh, receiving the unique characteristics of that experience, really noticing what's happening, not just sloth and torpor, but what is sloth and torpor made up of? Heaviness, lightness, uh, certain experiences in the body. So the second hindrance is doubt. In the text, doubt is characterized as a pond that is muddy and stirred up. And so we have the sense of how it is in our own minds when doubt is there. Um, We can feel indecisive. We can feel confused. A lot of restlessness can be in the mind. It's often a mix of aversion, restlessness, wanting, various mixes of that. We want to be clearer. We want to know more. We want it to be different than it is. There's aversion to how it is. We can feel all those things. There's restlessness going on too. So like sloth and torpor, doubt is not something that we recognize immediately. It takes sometimes uh, a little time to know all of the symptoms before there is a realization that it's doubt. Mindfulness is the best spell breaker of this. The, the recognition that, oh, this is doubt. And usually it comes for me after I've realized that there was some indecision. Like, for example, what do I do? Do I do, I do this practice or that practice? Or should I stay here? Or should I go home? Or should I? I can't do this. You know, there's, so there's feeling of doubt in myself uh, a lot when doubt is there. Mostly that's how it comes, the doubting of myself. Uh, For some people, there's a doubt in the teachers, there's a doubt in the teachings, in uh, in what to do with the teachings. It's often manifested as um, thinking a lot, mental proliferation. We over-intellectualize or over-psychologize what's going on and not see that What's underneath that is doubt, really, about what to do. It's really, really simple to just come back to this is doubt. This is how doubt manifests, and to feel it in the body. Manindra, one of our teachers, used to say that doubt is the biggest Mara. Mara is a tempter or the temptress that leads us away from seeing things as they are. This, this doubt is the biggest uh, of, of Mara. A lot of times, um, this doubt in one's ability can be caused by a feeling of unworthiness, a feeling of inadequacy. Those are all things that may accompany or be the precursors to doubt in oneself. So noticing doubt, 
is best by coming to the body. Because a lot of times, uh, doubt is spun out in thinking, in the mind. Whenever I realize, I first realize that doubt is there, I try to come back to some very uh, simple and basic thing like the body and feel how it feels in the body to experience doubt. For me, it's like feeling that this body-mind is a broken piece of glass, like taking a a glass and just dropping it, uh, a, a pane of a window, for example, and just dropping it on the ground. It feels like things are splattered and splayed. So check out how it is for you to feel doubt in in your body, mind, and bring your attention right there. One um, Zen teacher uh, I heard once giving a Dharma talk said that when doubt is there, come to the breath, because you can know the breath. The breath can be known very, very clearly. When the breath is known clearly, then it dispels doubt for that moment. So then after knowing something very, very clearly, then turn towards the experience of doubt directly, intimately, and really know the terrain of doubt in the body-mind. The Buddha said that giving unwise attention to things that cause doubt is the nourishment of doubt. Giving wise attention to phenomena and examining their distinct qualities is the antidote. So this is what I talked about. Examining the distinct qualities is revealing the unique characteristics of doubt as they are expressing themselves in the body-mind. How it might feel very dispersed for myself. How there might be a kind of confusion in the mind. Um, like that pond um, that's all stirred up. One of the unwise attentions that I give to doubt is, I'll never be able to do this, and I believe it. And that's the unwise attention that is being spoken of. That those words, that thought comes, and I believe it, and I kind of run on that belief for a few minutes, for a sitting, and then realize this is just doubt. Yes, it's just a thought, but it sometimes it takes time to see what's feeding that, what's fueling that thought. It's really important to stay away from thinking about doubt because um, it just gets more tight. It's just like a dog chasing its tail when we're in doubt and we think and think and think about uh, the content, the storyline of doubt. I love this poem by Mary Oliver that has inspired me to go beyond the words in my head. Here in my head, language keeps making its tiny noises. How can I hope to be friends with the hard white stars whose flaring and hissing are not speech but pure radiance. How can I hope to be friends with the yawning spaces between them where nothing ever is spoken? 
Tonight at the edge of the field, I stood very still and looked up and tried to be empty of words. So this being empty of words can really help in terms of working with doubt. One of the things when doubt comes um, and I realize or I believe that I can't do this is I start thinking of ways to go home, actually, to roll up the mat. I think, you know, there, there are a couple of places in practice or more than a couple where we just want to roll up the mat and go home. So when this happens, just investigate, see whether doubt is feeding this, the doubt in your own ability, because it's just a thought. It's just a, a deep habit a lot, and we believe it. And refrain from acting it out. You know, See if you can exercise some restraint. There was a time when I was in Australia, it was that very retreat where um, I was just talking about where I had to uh, you know, say that life is uncertain, death is certain, where there were a few times when I wanted to go home. And... Um, I started plotting my way, but it was too hard, you know, because I was so far away from home, lucky thing. And uh, so when you see this plotting, see what's underneath it. Refrain from, you know, acting it out. In this case, it's not just going home, packing your bags, but refrain from thinking about it because you can go on long trains of thought, plotting your way out of here or... (laughs) even just, you know, getting to the library or something. Um, And it's not necessary if we can see right away how doubt is fueling all of that. So another thing that I want to remind us all of, and I say us because I include myself, is to relax around it. A lot of times when there's uh, doubt, there's kind of a tension. It's almost, for me, I can recognize that I'm just kind of not even breathing fully out. My breath is held halfway up all the time, and I'm only taking a half breath in and out, and I'm just not relaxed in the body, in the mind. So relax around what's going on. The best way to be clear about what's happening is to relax around it. Because with a tense mind, we can't see clearly. It's the, there's the, the filter of tension that we're seeing through. Upandita would ask us, what color glasses are you wearing today, Yogi Kamala? You know, is it the, the filter of greed or aversion or rejection? Or in this case, would it be tension that we're seeing through? striving that we're seeing through? Are we having the motivation to get rid of this feeling instead of actually opening to it? So relaxing around whatever's happening. So the third hindrance, after sloth and torpor, and then doubt, the third is aversion. And it comes in many forms and many intensities of the various forms. There's a simple impatience or irritation with what's going on, not liking, 
that very slight just pulling away from experience. It's, it's not just the experience out there, but it's the experience in here, in body-mind continuum, just kind of pulling away or pushing away or turning away the various kinds of resistance that we act out in very slight uh, behavior like that. Ill will, judgment, struggling, fear, or uh, full-blown terror, hatred, resentment, rage, grudge-bearing, grudge-bearing someone. I read recently, and someone reminded me that grudge-bearing is like getting stung by the same bee over and over and over and over again. Boy, that really made me take a look at that one. So traditionally, aversion is, uh, the metaphor for aversion is a boiling hot spring. So what do we know about this right away? That usually we can see aversion quite quickly, usually, unless it's such a deep habit pattern that it's always there. So it's ouch. No, we feel the ouchness of aversion. It's hot. It's a a very apparent signal and easily recognizable, usually easily recognizable. So the first thing, again, is to recognize what's going on. And if we're noting, for, at some times for some of us, noting is helpful, to actually note it or to notice. Sometimes we, we don't need a word. Just noticing can take place without the word. And this creates a kind of space between the experience of aversion, which is really hot and uncomfortable and um, pinching, and the space between that and the knowing of it, the actual um, recognition of it. And in that space, there can be a lot more relaxation around the actual experience of it. In mythological stories, there were dragon slayers or tamers, the knights that would uh, go out to um, where, the, where the so-called dragons were living in caves. And their magic was that if they knew the name of the dragon, uh, that name would take their destructive force away. So it's the same that I experienced when actually being able to recognize or notice without a word or sometimes to name the actual actual with true honesty what's going on. This is aversion. This is ill will. This is jealousy. This is envy. This is resistance. It's important to bring um, a large measure of compassion to these moments when we can soften around what's going on. So again, softening, relaxing, making space to actually see it more clearly. The energy of, of compassion is very tender, yet it can, uh, because of that tenderness, it can get close enough to recognize more clearly 
without any filters, without trying to justify or blame or make excuses for, but just to see very clearly what's going on. So how is it for you when anger arises in the body, in the mind? What does it feel like? Can you know that? Can you have the willingness to open to it and to uh, come close to it with a tender, compassionate kind of mindfulness? Can you uh, explore how does it manifest in the body? Scientifically, they've seen that it can manifest through heat in the hands. I feel it uh, sometimes heat in the heart area. Um, Sometimes there's prickliness around the forehead for me. So see how it is for you. Ground it in the body if you can. Relax around it. The Buddha said that the nourishment for ill will is giving unwise attention to irritating objects. So... (laughs) So I was in a retreat in Burma, and um, something was very much irritating me, and I reported it to the teacher. And it, it was just actually something that was very, very benign that happened over and over and over again. And so I re- it was about getting in line at a certain place. And uh, I thought that, okay, this was my place in line, that I have to be in this place, and this certain person over and over again, the person was just doing their thing, but it triggered something in me that brought up this irritation all the time. And I I didn't want to go to psychologically what what happened in my childhood, forget that, you know, it didn't work. I just wanted to just be with the irritation, but it happened over and over and over again. And when I told the teacher, the teacher said, get in a different place in line. You know, so it was okay, you know, not to give unwise attention to irritating objects. So I could have also, I could have also guarded the sense doors, you know, and just kept my head down and not looked at, just looked at the the feet all the time instead of looking up. So find out what that might be for you. Could it be like it has been for me getting caught up in stories, in defending myself, in being right? You know, that's giving unwise attention also. So this can cause, this can be the cause. Our going over and over things can be the cause of this unwise attention, which brings up this ill will. There's a certain amount, I admit, that we needs to come through but we know when it's too much. We know when it's just over and over again. It, it, this isn't working, you know, to, to review this story one more time. The antidote for uh, ill will is loving kindness. It's the antidote for fear, for hatred, for all of the various related um, things about hatred, aversion. So a little loving kindness can help. It's helpful to take um, a period when we're going through a period of a lot of um, ill will or aversion. Sometimes it's helpful to take one period of time to do metta. 
not to just give it a band-aid every time it comes up, but to actually take one period and do metta for the whole period of time. So recognizing what's going on, um, relaxing around it, reframing your attention, this is the very place where liberation can take place, opening to this aversion, refraining from acting it out, being careful. You know, sometimes we write those notes, which are, I guess we're not supposed to do anyway, write those notes about something we're irritated about, and then we sign it metta. (laughs) So this doesn't help at all, believe me. I've tried it. It just makes the mind more stirred up. I've even tried writing one with my left hand so the office wouldn't know who wrote it. And um, it just makes the mind more and more filled with uh, self-righteousness and all of those things that are related to ill will. So relaxing, recognizing, refraining from acting it out. So the fourth one is restlessness. Restlessness is the inability to stay steady on an object, on any object where it's always slipping off. In the text, it's described as a wind-whipped flag. And that's actually how the mind-body feel. Sometimes it's just in the mind. Sometimes it's manifested in the body as well as a reflection of what's going on in the mind. It manifests as anxiety, worry, disquiet, regret, um, remorse, the kind of, not that healthy kind of remorse, but that kind of remorse that has a lot of guilt in it. That over and over again we review what what we did that wasn't didn't quite lead to um, something beneficial for ourselves or others in life. It's a busy mind where it's very difficult to sit still. So the first thing, and this is one of the ones that we have a difficult time actually recognizing and opening to, is restlessness itself. They say that restlessness is like a bull that needs a big pasture. So giving yourself a lot of space. So oftentimes it's helpful in sitting to let the mind be very, very big. Let the mind go out to hearing. Or when you're experiencing restlessness, for me it's really helpful to just open the eyes and take in a big view. And you'll, you might pay attention to the body and see how it settles down a little more. These are the, some of the direct antidotes. Um, if you're outside, it helps. You know, sitting, if you feel a lot of restlessness, sitting outside during a sitting period or a walking period can help. And even keeping the eyes open or with your eyes closed, opening to hearing. So restlessness is something that we can relax around as well. Um, Recognizing that it's happening relaxing around it, refraining from acting it out. 
you know, from doing the things that we want to do that restlessness um, kind of pushes us to do. Well, maybe I'll go into town and get that ice cream cone that, or um, I'll walk, you know, that way towards Petersham. Um, so we've seen it all. Uh, so just knowing how it would, you would act it out and seeing if you can refrain from doing that. The Buddha said, giving unwise attention to things that agitate the mind is the nourishment of restlessness. So knowing what agitates the mind and refraining from doing that, guarding the sense doors, really, really helps. The last is attachment, desire, uh, clinging. In the text, it's likened to a pond with colored dyes, the inability to recognize what's really going on when this is happening. And uh, really, it's quite, everything's quite obscure. Um, this is really when our teacher, Upandita, would say, what color glasses are you wearing today? You know, when there were uh, experiences of pleasant uh, Vedana, or pleasant feeling always there, he'd question us to, You know, is there anything else happening? Like, we'd be clinging to the pleasant experience. Usually our attention is on the object of our desire. You know, just for example, on what we want, what we want to happen in our practice, what we want um, to eat, for example, or maybe we're having a, a Vipassana romance, what we want, you know, there's somebody in retreat that we you know, somebody's shoes that we really like. I mean, because we're always looking down. Um, For me, it's wanting to go home, wanting to see my children. I get a lot of homesickness. And we're not so, um, we're not so recognizing the feeling of desire. So it's helpful to turn the attention from the object of desire to actually Feel what desire feels like in the body-mind. It feels very agitating. When we turn the attention towards this agitation, it's not. It's easier to see for the for one thing. There's less. Um, there's less danger that there'll be attachment there because it's there's this agitating experience that's happening, and there's this greater ability just to be with that object. It's harder to, to the object of agitation. It's harder to be with what we want going. It's going home. I think of my home. I think of the pleasant experiences there, my own bed, hugging my kids, my grandkids. And um, it goes on and on and on. But when I turn to the actual feeling of agitation, it's much easier to see the impermanence of that. It's much easier to see how that's coming and going. And the, um, the slipping away of that object, the clarity of that becomes more pristine in, in one's experience. So recognizing that hindrance right away, turning the attention towards the agitation of it in the body, in the mind, is really, really helpful. Uh,
So these are the hindrances. There's there's much more that can be said about um, attachment, and I'm planning to give a talk on attachment, so I'll leave more about that for later. So all of these experiences of hindrances can be open to. They can be recognized clearly for what they really are. That We can relax around them. And this is a big part of our practice, to relax around what's going on. The possibility for reframing our understanding of them is uh, great when we're really conscious of our intention to open to them because we want to open to them. This is the very place to bring our attention. Reframing our, um, our understanding, refraining from acting them out because this only encourages them. It only makes the roots of them deeper in our practice. Realizing their true nature. When we're able to do all of these things, we're able to see more deeply into their impermanent, uh, selfless, and unsatisfying nature. I'd like to end with um, a poem by Wendell Berry. And this is called The Broken Ground. The opening out and out the breakening through which the new comes, perching above its shadow on the piling up darkened, broken old husks of itself. Bud opening to flower, opening to fruit, opening to the sweet marrow of the seed, taken from what was, from what could have been. What is left is what is. Let's sit for just a moment and let the words dissolve. Thank you for listening to the Dhamma. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.